The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, we are beginning a 12-week study through the book of Ecclesiastes today. The word Ecclesiastes literally means gathering. Um, This book has been disregarded by um, almost all of the modern church. It's, It's probably fairly easy to say that most of you have probably never heard a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And the reason that is, is because honestly, most of the church just doesn't really understand what to do with this Old Testament book. If you have read it, you might be confused yourself. You might push back against it. And yet the famous American author of Moby Dick, Herman Melville, said that Ecclesiastes is, quote, the truest of all books. And I agree with him. Ecclesiastes is a book that takes a long, honest look at life on this big blue spinning marble we call earth. It isn't a depressing book unless you misunderstand it. Instead, Ecclesiastes calls us to joy, but not a joy that is superficial and shallow. Instead, in the words of of Pastor Douglas Wilson, it is a joy that thinks a joy that does not shrink back from hard questions. And so we pray that God would give us the courage to ask these hard questions about life, to think hard about them, and to find a deep and lasting joy in the answer that God provides for us in his word. Now, this book of the Bible starts off by claiming to be the words of koholet. That's the word in the Hebrew. It's the word, it says right here, if you look at Ecclesiastes chapter one, so you've got Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. That's where you need to find it. If you're looking for it in your Bible, find it right there, okay? Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse one, it says the words of the, if you're reading the ESV, the words of the preacher. That is the word koholet. 
It's a word that means literally a person at the center of a gathering. Someone who, me right now, okay? A person at the center of a gathering. Somebody who teaches or talks or preaches. So the ESV translates that word, the preacher. But I'll be honest, and if you've read this book, if this book is written by a preacher, it's a mighty confusing sermon, all right? Preachers are meant to provide answers, and as we'll see, I'm going to just call the guy Q. Q doesn't do that very well, okay? Some translations like the NIV call, say, the teacher, and that's a little closer to the mark, but I still think it's off. I think the best translation is actually philosopher. See, philosophers teach and preach not by telling you what's true or providing answers but by asking the questions most of us don't really have the guts to ask ourselves. And the book of Ecclesiastes is a lot easier to understand if we get this right up front from the beginning. This book isn't about the answers. It's about asking ourselves the right questions. The rest of the Bible is about the answers. So Q's trying to do what a good philosopher does. He wants to push us to actually evaluate all of our beliefs, all of our behaviors, why we do what we do. He wants to say to us, do you really believe that? And if you do, do you see its logical conclusion? Do you see where that strain of thought or strain of behavior, do you see where that's going to lead you? So this book is going to do a lot of good for all of us, even if you're not a Christian. It's going to challenge our worldviews, the way we see the world. It's going to challenge the foundations that we build our lives upon. And it's going to cause us, I hope, to evaluate what we really believe. So the book begins... The words of the preacher or philosopher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The philosopher doesn't actually name himself. And there's a lot of debate among scholars who this book was actually written by. Um, but traditionally, this book has been credited to Solomon. And if you know anything about the Bible, Solomon was the second born son of King David and Bathsheba. When Solomon grew up and he became king of Israel, he was overwhelmed with the task that was set before him. And so in 1 Kings chapter 3, another Old Testament book that kind of tells the narrative of Scripture, he asked God for the wisdom to govern Israel and to be able to discern between good and evil. Well, God was pleased with his request He didn't ask for riches or power. Instead, he he didn't ask for the conquering of his enemies. Instead, Solomon asked for wisdom. So God said this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before and none like you shall rise after you. And then he added to that as the uh, proverbial cherry on top, I give you also what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. 
And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. It's interesting here that God gave him the answer to his prayer. God gave him wisdom and he added to it riches and power and honor. But what's interesting is that the wise and understanding mind was not a guarantee of good and God-honoring behavior. And that is exactly what we witness if we study the life of Solomon. He was wise. Kings and queens sought out his wisdom. He was one of the richest men to have ever lived. He was powerful. But he was also a man of great excesses and sins. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's 300 living girlfriends. Many of these wives were foreign queens and princesses married to build alliances with other nations. And as you follow the narrative of Solomon's life, he disobeyed the voice of God. He disobeyed the words of his father and he tur- and he, his heart was turned away from God and toward the, the foreign gods of these other women. And Solomon's reign was marked, it was, it's interesting, it was, it's marked by great national and economic success. So everybody was making money, everybody was prospering, and yet it was also marked simultaneously by spiritual bankruptcy. Solomon was a man who had to try everything for himself, never content to learn from the mistakes of others or heed the voice of his father. And so Solomon's spiritual wandering cost him and the nation of Israel dearly. His kingdom, because of his sinfulness and his abandonment of God, his sinfulness caused the kingdom of Israel to eventually be overthrown. His wealth all of his wealth, plundered. His temple, the great achievement of his life, destroyed. His nation carried off into captivity, all because of his rebellion over and against God. Now, this is where Ecclesiastes comes in. The philosopher Solomon is looking back over his remarkable life and meditating ruminating on the lessons learned. He's the old guy on the rocker on the front porch, just watching life, thinking back over his life. And this old man wants to teach us a thing or two. See, He's a man of wisdom, a man who has had what we are all most likely longing for at this very moment in our lives. Most of us right now are grasping for money, more of it. Grasping for success, more of it. Grasping for power, more of it. Grasping for privilege, grasping for sex, more of it. Grasping for wisdom. But although he had all those things, he didn't have, listen, the one thing necessary to enjoy those things. And that's an important theme in this book. Let me quote 
Doug Wilson again. I've got it up on the screen. One of my favorite quotes. I've had this stored for like 10 years. God is the one who gives things. And God is the one who gives the power to enjoy things. These are distinct gifts, just as a can of peaches and a can opener are distinct gifts. Only the first is given to the unbeliever. The believer is given both, which is simply another way of saying that he is given the capacity for enjoyment. Now listen, I hope you get that. God gives a can of peaches to every single person when they're born. But the can opener, he only gives to the believer. And Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to prove that to you, Ecclesiastes is about the frustrating reality of life with a whole lot of can of peaches, but no can opener. This is why the philosopher begins and ends his book with this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, that's encouraging. Well, what is that? First off, we've got to understand what this word vanity is. It's very hard to translate. It's the Hebrew word is havel. The NIV translates that word as meaningless. And so if you're reading from the NIV, I apologize. It's even worse. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And I'm going to tell you, that's not a good translation. Uh, Later, he's going, the philosopher is going to say in chapter four, verse six, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Well, if one way of living is better than another, then obviously everything is not meaningless, right? So when you go to the Hebrew, you see that Havel is actually translated literally as breath. Vapor. Think about walking outside on a late spring morning in the middle of June, and it's 10 degrees out, right? And letting your breath exhale, and what happens? That's life. That's everything. You breathe out, you see it, it's gone. The philosopher says, that's life, vapor, vapor, breath, breath. It's short. Think about it. You breathe out, it's there, it's gone. It's elusive. You you can't grab it. You can't hold it in. You can't store it for later. And breathing is mind-numbingly repetitive. Breathe in, breathe out, repeat 25,000 times a day. So the philosopher is saying, life isn't meaningless, as the new atheists would tell you. No, it's short. You can't hold on to it for long. Ask anyone over the age of 60, and they'll say, feels like a day. It's mind-numbingly repetitive, right? It's elusive. Many never come to understand what all their life is about. They can never quite grab the meaning and the purpose of life. 
And it's terribly repetitive. Once you become a parent, you just, this just washes over you. Clean, eat, clean, wipe. Eat, clean, wipe. Clean, eat, wipe. Clean, clean. Call your husband and say, when are you getting home? (laughs) Clean, eat, wipe. Clean, eat, wipe. And (laughs) Now listen, I, I love this. Like a good philosopher, Solomon asks this question that he wishes for all of us to meditate on this morning. So he kind of lays out this thought. Everything is a vapor. Everything is a breath. And then he asks this question. Here's the question he wants us to meditate on this morning. It's right there in verse three. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, as in all good questions, every word of that sentence is important. But let's zero in on the word gain for a moment. Gain is used 10 times in Ecclesiastes, and it's an important word to understand. It's a word from the world of economics. It means what's left over after the cost of doing business. We would say, what's your profit? After everything is said and done, after all the expenses are paid, what do you have left over? The philosopher is looking at us and his readers and he's saying this, you're so busy. You are so, you are just busy little bees, aren't you? You're working so hard when it's all said and done. What will you have to show for it? What will be your profit? What is your life for? What is your life accomplishing? What difference are you making? Now, these are the unasked and unanswered questions that we all run from. These are the questions that drive men and women into midlife crises of all sorts. It's funny, if it wasn't so true, it would be funny, how long we try to go without asking or answering these questions. Listen, if I asked you to meet me here Saturday night from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m., hey man, come meet, will you meet me at the theater from 6 to 7? First response, sure dude. What for? Why? You would be so concerned about wasting one hour of your life that most of you wouldn't even show up if I didn't give you a good reason to be here. And the philosopher says to us this morning, you will ask a question like that about how you spend your Saturday night, but will you ask a question like that about how you're spending your life? Will you ask why? Will you ask what's it all for? Can you answer this question? What is your life about? How do you know your life is not a waste? What will you actually accomplish with your life? Now listen, if you're not asking that question, you're not living thoughtfully. 
You're not living as a human being. You're living as an animal. You're going on your gut, on your instinct. It was Socrates that said, the unexamined life is not worth living. How pitiful if your life can only be enjoyed by not thinking about it. How sad. Solomon here is pushing us into a corner with his question. And like a good philosopher, he then goes on to illustrate his point well. So look, verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The answer to that, it's implied in it, is nothing. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So what Solomon's saying is the earth keeps spinning, people keep dying, people keep being born, and the earth keeps spinning. Sometimes I love going back and looking at old pictures from the Quad Cities and seeing the Mississippi River and, see, and thinking about how many different people have walked this earth and lived in even your house and sat by the same river or sat by the same pond and watched it. A generation comes, a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. And then look what he says. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. This word uh, is like a breathless, it means breathless. So what Solomon is saying is even the sun is tired. Every day sets, it rises. It sets, it rises. He says this life is so exhausting and so repetitive, even the sun is tired. Keeps reading. Verse six, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. This is repetition. Seven, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where streams flow and there they flow again. So he uses three illustrations from creation about the repetitive nature, the elusive nature of life. And then look at verse eight. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. You know what he's saying? He's saying we can never get to the end of explaining this frustration that we have with life. The repetitive nature, words are never enough. He says this, the eye is not satisfied with seeing your Netflix queue tells the story of this, right? You never, your eye never fills up. You, you, your eye never says, I've had enough. I've had enough of that, right? Hopefully your mind does, hopefully your will does, but your eye never gets tired of seeing beautiful things, right? Keep going. The ear is never filled with hearing, so we can just hear and hear and hear and gain wisdom and we can read books, we can learn, we can watch movies, we can take in sunsets, we can travel. Our eye is never satisfied. Our ear is never satisfied. There's always more to hear and experience. And after his question and after his illustration, the philosopher brings us to his natural conclusion in verse nine. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Now, most of us, especially if you're younger, 
we might push back on this conclusion. And a good philosopher, he expects to push back, right? He's been asking this question for a long time, and young whippersnappers always respond with the same ways. This is why college professors seem so wise, okay? They're really not, if most of them, I apologize, college professors. You sit down with them, they've got questions, they've got struggles just like everybody else, but they've been teaching this class year after year, and every freshman asks the same question. So they've got the canned response, they sound like Socrates himself, right? This is why freshman philosophy sends so many children back to their parents, just, oh, what happened? Talk to your parents, right? They've been through this before, probably, all right? Now, most of us, we're pushing back on this. We're thinking, there's nothing new under the sun? Well, what about my iPhone? Solomon, did my iPhone exist? Is that not something new, Solomon? But look what the look how he, he responds to this, or he sets this up before we can even ask the question. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. What? No, it hasn't. There's no remembrance of former things, nor there will be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after Solomon says this, there's no new things. Now listen, everything new that we would say is new is just a modification of something that has already existed. The cell phone is just a new way of communication. Communication is nothing new. We talk, we listen, around, around we spin. When we die, a thousand years from now, no one will remember us. Few will remember our cell phones. And all our working, all our striving, all our building, all our grasping at things will mean nothing more to the universe than our warm exhale does on a cold spring morning. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The answer is nothing. We gain nothing. Now, before you diss me, I can already tell, oh, nervous. You're getting nervous. You're getting uneasy. I'm a Debbie Downer. I get it. Before you dismiss me and put your head back down in the sand like an ostrich, avoiding the predators out there, I just don't think about it. It'll make my life better. I'll be safe. Just don't think about these questions. Let me draw your attention to one more thing. Verse three, the philosopher says this, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That phrase, under the sun, is a key for us to understand the philosopher's argument here. When he uses that term, he's telling us that he is looking at life on a horizontal level. A life lived under the sun is a life without God, who God is clearly above and beyond the sun. So what the philosopher is doing here, 3,000 years ago, is depicting life for us from a secular perspective. So what Solomon is saying is apart from God, 
people gain absolutely nothing from all their toil. One generation hops on the exercise bike, goes hard, dies. The next generation gets on the exercise bike, goes hard, dies. On and on and on we go until maybe the exercise bike breaks down. Going nowhere, (laughs) accomplishing nothing but going hard, right? Sweating, working hard, burning calories, burning energy, but going nowhere. That's life. This is the vanity of vanities of a life lived without God under the sun. Now, I hope you have the courage to see this. It takes courage to evaluate your life and ask your life, yourself these questions. And this is, this is actually exactly what modern atheists and secularists have been saying for years. From a naturalistic perspective, they say, we came from nowhere, from nothing. We are going nowhere for nothing. Now, it's interesting to me. When you ask a naturalist, So what? Like, how do I live that worldview? How how do I live as a part of that story? How am I supposed to wake up every day knowing my life is utterly pointless and live a good life and make the world a better place? How can I even determine what a good life is in that worldview? Everything was pointless and meaningless. Everything will be pointless and meaningless. Somehow I'm supposed to find meaning in the middle there. You know what these secular scientists say? Secular scientists, psychologists, some of, some of these are, are, are some of the brightest people in our world today, and you know what they tell you to do? Stop thinking about it. I thought it was the Christians who didn't want us to think about things. I thought it was the Christians who based their life on blind faith. No. See, the secularists say life is meaningless, but you can't really believe that if you want to live a meaningful life. So therefore, don't really think about it. Live like your everyday life has meaning. Now, I don't really know where Dr. Jordan Peterson is at spiritually. He's a Harvard-trained evolutionary psychologist that has been using the Bible in many of his lectures on YouTube and in his new book, uh, 12 Ways. And this is how he describes what Solomon's talking about here, the meaninglessness of life or the repetitiveness of life. He says this, I think I've got it up there, good. Being is suffering Tainted by malevolence in the world. I used this quote a few weeks back. So what's the meaning of life? So first up, he says, being is suffering, tainted by malevolence in the world. He's saying the life, the world is broken. The world is, there's evil out in the world. The world is full of suffering. So that's the meaning of life. Life is hard. Life is difficult. And there's wicked people out there. So what's the meaning of life? He says this. There's pain to alleviate. There's chaos to confront. There's order to establish and revivify. There's evil to constrain, not least in our own hearts. Now that is very noble. It's inspiring even. But again, look, he 
doesn't answer or ask the why question. He says, the world is evil. Oh, well, don't be. Well, why not? If in the end, it all ends with the sun burning out and earth freezing, who cares? But here's one thing. In a Christian worldview, Peterson is correct. Do you know the the Christian story? Do you know the narrative of the Bible? That the Bible teaches us that God exists outside of creation, alone. He is the only one who's good, right, and perfect. He's the only one who is what the Bible calls holy. And God chose out of his own will to create everything that exists. And when he created it, God said, it is good. It is good. It is very good that everything was created perfect. And yet one of his creations, first off, an angel who eventually rebelled against him. And then that angel ended up tempting the first human beings and Adam and Eve were tempted and they rebelled against God. And when they rebelled against God, the earth, the universe was cursed and the human race was cursed. And so that's, we call that the fall. So creation, everything was good. Fall, everything fractured. Everything became vanity of vanities. In this system, guys, there was no hope for making things right. Every human being is bent. Every human being is fractured. Every human being is born and they jump on the exercise bike. Well, if you're on an exercise bike, how are you going to change anything? How are you going to influence anything? How are you going to fix anything? And the story of the scriptures is no one could. Solomon couldn't. His father David couldn't. Samson couldn't. You go through every hero of the Old Testament and they all lived their life on the exercise bike, burned a lot of energy and died. And the earth kept spinning and humans kept sinning and wars still ravaged the world. Everything under the sun has been cursed because of the rebellion of mankind. Now listen, at this point of the story, we agree with Peterson and the secularists. Things are malevolent and careening towards destruction. They weren't created that way, but that's where they are now. But here's what they miss. The Bible tells a different story. The Bible tells a story where the meaninglessness under the sun can be healed by one from beyond the sun. One could come from beyond the sun who would not be tainted by malevolence, who would have no evil in his own heart. And he could come and do what every other man failed to do. See, in one sense, this book, Ecclesiastes, is the most modern of all books. It describes a life without God at the center. It describes a secular life. But in another sense, this book is painfully outdated. And if we're going to understand it, we, have, we need the updated version. Okay, Think of this as one chapter in the story of God, which is the whole Bible. We need to go to the New Testament. 
See, Solomon says here, there is nothing new under the sun. And that was true, listen, until the eternal son of God left heaven. Solomon's portrayal of the, of the human existence was dead on accurate until the eternal son of God came from beyond heaven and entered into humanity to live this life under the sun. In John 8, 23, Jesus says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. When Jesus enters our world, he literally changes everything. He breaks the vain cycle of human existence. Jesus did what no one else could do. He lived a perfect life. No one had ever done that. He dies as a son of heaven in the place of children of men. But then Jesus breaks the cycle of death and is resurrected to new life, never to die again. When Jesus came, he came bringing a new word, the gospel, the good news, that God has left heaven and come to save mankind from their sins, from the trappings of a meaningless life. Jesus offered people a new birth. People could get a totally new self from him. Jesus ushered in a new kingdom and promised to bring a new heaven and a new earth where, when he returned again. See, the cycle stopped in a sense. The cycle was interrupted when Christ came from beyond the sun. Jesus says in John eleven twenty five 25 through 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. See, the book of Revelation tells us that Jesus, upon his resurrection and his ascension, that now he's sitting at the right hand of God in the throne room of God, and Jesus is making all things new. Solomon says, nothing new under the sun. That's true, it, apart from Christ. And this reality changes the way Christians live their everyday lives. I want you to listen how Paul describes it. So we can get depressed, we can get pressed down by thinking of just the, the sheer monotony of our everyday life. Wake up, coffee, kids, clothes, school, work, come home cook, eat, kids, bedtime, <sighs> one hour of peace. Wait, here they come. Oh, get back to your room. 45 minutes of peace. Oh, here they come. <laughs> you got kids. You know what I'm talking about. You don't? You will someday, Maybe. <laughs> And we can, we can ask ourselves, Christians, you should ask yourself too, is what I'm doing, does, does it matter? These diapers, 
Does it matter? This food, does it matter? This working out, does it matter? This neighbor being kind to my, does it matter? Because Christ lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve and is resurrected to new life, the answer is yes. And this is interesting. The Apostle Paul, he was a brilliant Old Testament scholar. He knew Ecclesiastes in and out. He knew that that Solomon taught everything is meaningless. What do you gain from all your toil and all your labor? Is there any gain? He knew the answer of Solomon was no. There's no It means nothing. There is no gain. And listen what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. In the Lord, that's Jesus, your labor is not in vain. For Christians, because Christ was resurrected, everything we do in life has eternal significance. Everything. I'm going to quote, an extensive quote here as I close from Tim Keller. He said it so well, I couldn't change it. I just said, I'm going to quote it. This is what he says. Do you know what it means to be a Christian? It means to know that everything in this life is just a reflection of the truth of God's nature. I know the reason that there's spring after winter. I know the reason seed when it dies brings up a flower because that tells me something about ultimate reality, that God brings life out of death. I know when I talk to somebody on a subway, I could turn them toward God. So if that person makes a decision to move toward God, that conversation in the subway could be something that has this gain, this for a profit. Three billion years from now, that person and I could be sitting around the throne laughing and saying, you remember that conversation on the subway? Right now counts forever. Everything means everything or else nothing means anything. Those are the two poles. If Jesus is the meaning of life, if everything you do during the day is connected to him, don't you see everything means everything? The baby is crying at 4 a.m. You get up, You get your hands full of all that stuff. Now, there are two ways to look at it. You can say, this child is just the chance pattern of matter that is a result of a chance collision of molecules. This child eventually will die and rot, probably after I've died and rotten. No one will remember it, and nothing this child ever does, and nothing I ever do will ever come to anything. Or else, this child is made in the image of God. This child is an immortal soul. This child, if he or she turns to the Lord, he or she and I will sit around the throne three billion years from now laughing and loving in each other's arms and casting our crowns before Jesus, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Everything means everything. When I clean up my house, it's not because I have an electrochemical need in my brain for order. It's because I'm made in the image of God who brings order out of chaos. Everything means everything. If Jesus is your meaning, you have splendor in the ordinary in every bit of your life. Even the smallest details of the humdrum of life is shot through with glory. Either nothing means anything or everything means everything.
and there's nowhere in the middle. I want to ask you this morning, where are you at on that spectrum? Does your life have meaning? Now, I know we want to say, yeah, 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 it does, because my, I'm just loving my kids, and I'm just doing good work, but you're dying. You're dying. They're dying. Does it have meaning? Now, you, you might be a Christian, and you say, well, I, I've checked that off my list. Of course, I, I, I know God, but is God at the center of your life? Is Jesus at the center of your meaning? Is he everything to you? Can you do what I just described there and, and, and trace the fingerprints of God back from your normal rhythms of everyday life? See, many Christians think they've dealt with God. They've gotten that forgiveness thing that Jesus offers, but Jesus isn't the center of their life. I'm asking you this morning, you begin by thinking about it, asking yourself the hard questions. What is my life for? Why am I here for? And the answer is, if it's anything other than Jesus Christ, it's going to amount to nothing. But if it is Jesus Christ, everything is everything. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for Solomon, his brokenness, his searching, his rebellion from God that can teach us to not touch the hot stove can teach us to not live a life of meaningless, not waste this one gift that we've been given from you. I pray that our life would find its meaning in Jesus Christ and then everything in our life would have meaning. All of our labor is not in vain in the Lord. For those of us who've never embraced faith, I, I pray that they would see the goodness of Jesus. They would evaluate his claims. They would search his life and search his legacy. And they would find you at the center of it all. And they would begin to center their life around Jesus Christ. The Christian who has been Christian in word, but his life or her life does not have Jesus at the center, I pray that you would bring repentance. You would turn from chasing after idols, chasing after all the things that Solomon had, chasing after all the cans of peaches, and they would find the can opener, Jesus Christ. Father, you're good. You've given us good gifts in your son. Jesus, we thank you for bringing meaning to life under the sun. And now we come to the Lord's table, and you put something physical into our hands. You're reminding us that Jesus entered into this story, this human history, full of agony, full of depression, full of defeat, full of suffering, full of loss. He entered into it and he took it upon himself. He didn't come to earth with a swagger, and a crown, came weeping and suffering and loving broken people like us. And Jesus, on the night that he would be betrayed by those closest to him, the night that he would be abandoned by his own father in the garden, 
he broke the bread and he handed it to those around him, his disciples, his community. And he said, eat this in remembrance of me. That this is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that was shed for you. That Jesus broke the cycle through his death and through his resurrection. And this morning, we get to be a part of it. We get to participate in it. We get to receive it and be reminded no matter how meaningless our life feels, Christ has made it eternally significant. Father, we eat this and drink this and worship this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.